Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we're thankful to be here, thankful that we can come before you boldly because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when we're condemned, when the enemy tells us of our guilt within, we have a savior, a mediator, and we can look upward and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Thank you for your grace to undeserving sinners like us. Got to pray for those in this room who have had an abortion or those who have contributed to an abortion. Pray that on the one hand, they would agree with the grievousness of what it is, but on the very next breath realize that there's grace for everyone and there's forgiveness. And where is the, there is a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, there is zero room for guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you would use their story as a testimony to others that ultimately life would be saved. We do pray for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It seems more realistic now than it has in a very long time. And we pray that you would do it. Pray that you would overturn it. And when we think of new life, we're thankful. We get to celebrate so often at Southside New Life. And I'm thankful for the birth, the healthy birth of Rawlings Elizabeth Akers. Pray for her and pray for her parents in these days of, of being weary and tired and lack of sleep, that it would also be days of joy. And I pray for them to have a newfound resolve to you that they would live for you and make disciples of these children. We pray for Rawlings salvation even now, God, that you would save her at a very, very early age, open her hearts to cherish Jesus. God, I pray for an increased culture of evangelism in Southside Baptist Church. God, I pray that you would Give us fuel and motivation. May the gospel be so precious to us that we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. That there would be stories and prayers and conversions all throughout this church. Would you burden us for the lost? Help us. We want to do it. Give us easy opportunities. 
We pray that your word would speed ahead and be honored. Even this morning, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we jump back into the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new with us, welcome. What we do here is we just walk through books of the Bible. And so we're in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew for quite some time. We'll take breaks here and there. But basically the point is whatever the passage says, that's where we're going. And so we're in Matthew chapter 2. And I've said in Matthew that one of the main points of this book is to show that the story of Jesus fulfills the story of Israel. We really can't fully understand who Jesus Christ is if we don't understand our Old Testament. In this passage this morning, Matthew is going to lay out three events in the early life of Jesus that fulfill three Old Testament prophecies that actually cover quite a span of time because we just finished the wise men and then after these three stories, we'll be all the way at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So let's look at these three narratives in these three prophecies. We've got first the trip to Egypt, second Herod's murderous rage, and third the return to Nazareth. And then we'll look at five ways to respond. So first narrative here, the trip to Egypt in Matthew 2 verse 13. Look there with me again. Now when they, speaking of the wise men, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes Hosea here. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So after these wise men leave, this angel comes to Joseph here, says, take Jesus, take Mary to Egypt for their safety. And it would have taken them a year to get there. And it was rare, it was dangerous to travel by night. But Joseph's told, so Joseph goes. God is at work here in a miraculous way. He's brought forth this Christ child, conceived in the Virgin Mary, and now he's going to ensure that this child is safe. Herod is out to destroy him. Remember Herod the Great, power-hungry fool. He thought he was clever. He told the, the wise man, hey, you know, when you find them, come back and tell me that I might worship him too. Well, the only person Herod was interested in worshiping was himself. He was a sick man. He had killed three of his own sons that he might retain the crown. He had had two of them strangled. He killed his brother-in-law, he killed his mother-in-law, and historians tell us he killed his favorite wife, Miriam. I shudder to think how he treated his least favorite wife. (laughs) One time there was an assassination attempt, so people were going to take him out, and what he did was he got the 10 conspirators, put them together, executed every one of them along with their families. He had the plan that when he died, he would have all the Jewish nobility. Remember, he wasn't even fully Jewish. He had no right to this throne. He wasn't a son of David. And he had this plan so that when he died, all the Jewish nobility would be killed so that there might be mourning in the land when he died. Just a sick guy. But remember, if you've been with us in the fall, remember Genesis 315. 
the first gospel announcement, and it tells us that there would be perpetual hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, this antithesis. And here it is. Herod is the offspring of the serpent seeking to destroy the offspring of the woman. So Herod hears of this king, and he needs to extinguish him. And here we have a reversal. We're going to see reversals all through the Gospel of Matthew. It is the upside-down kingdom. It's not what we would expect because here he is, the king of Israel. And what does he have to do? He flees to Egypt. Do you remember your Bible? Egypt's not a friendly place to the Jews, right? The book of Exodus. The true king of Israel doesn't find safety in Jerusalem. He has to flee to the enemy territory to escape the false king of Israel in Jerusalem. And so right from the beginning, Jesus Christ has had his persecutors as well as his church, but to no avail. No need to be greatly moved. No need to fear. What has become of the Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, the Diocletians, the King Charles, Bloody Mary of England, the greatest persecutor of the church are dead, lying in a grave being eaten by worms, and the church marches on. By the way, there was this theory here among the Jews that Jesus went to Egypt to learn black magic. So Jesus goes to Egypt and he learns black magic in order to come back to Jerusalem to deceive the people of Israel. Well, not exactly. And notice what Matthew says here. Matthew says, this happened to fulfill Hosea 11, which says, out of Israel, excuse me, out of Egypt, I called my son. What is going on? Hosea 11.1. 1. I know you all know exactly what Hosea 11 is all about, but just in case, Hosea 11.1 1 is about the people of Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my son Israel. Well, what Matthew's doing and what he will do in chapters to come is show that Jesus is the true Israel. A lot of commentators actually think that Matthew is misusing Hosea, like misquoting it. But I think we ought to go with Matthew, not modern commentators. And the New Testament actually helps us understand the Old Testament. Love the way Augustine put it in the 300s. He says, the new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. Or as Nehemiah Cox, an old Baptist guy, <clears throat> says, the best interpreter <clears throat> of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the new. And so how can a verse of Hosea 11 about the people of Israel find fulfillment in Jesus? Well, again, because Matthew is presenting Jesus as the true and faithful Israel. That's what the Messiah was. The Messiah is the one who embodies his people. He's a corporate personality. They fit under him. He is the corporate person who represents and embodies the whole nation. Israel is summed up in her king. The true destiny of Israel is wrapped up in Jesus. So Matthew's not misusing Hosea, but we need to do a little bit of Bible work to see that. Here's a good principle. Oftentimes when you're reading your New Testament and it quotes the Old Testament, it's usually just a line or two, right? More often than not, the vast majority of time, the New Testament writers have more than just that verse in mind. Sometimes it's the whole chapter. Sometimes it's a whole section of chapters. So if you're reading with us, the F260 plan, it's only two chapters a day. That's about eight minutes. Let me encourage you to do something on occasion. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, go back and read that whole chapter. That's what we need to do with Hosea. And I would love for your eyes to be on your Bible. And so go ahead and look for Hosea 11. Let's do some Bible drills. If you're using... 
If you're using one of our, uh, it's not pew Bibles anymore, is it? One of our uh, Bibles in the bottom of the chair. That doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same. It's page 709. You can reach down in front of it if you need to. Hosea towards the end of the Old Testament, chapter 11. Feel free to use the table of contents. It might take us eight minutes. It's hard to find. <laughs> Hosea 11. And Hosea 11, of course, is prophecy. It's the prophet Hosea. And it's about Israel's future restoration from the nations. So I want to read. He quotes verse 1, but I want to read the whole first at least 11 verses here. Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There it is. God often called the people of Israel his son, probably the first times in Exodus chapter 4. Let me read from it. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So Israel is the son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Let's keep reading. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king. They weren't in captivity to Egypt. Egypt is a type of Assyria. The point here is they're not home. They're in exile. Because they refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities. Consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt there it is again they'll come from Egypt they're not in Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria where they were and I will return to them return them to their homes declares the Lord Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit notice in verse 11 there's this idea of them coming out of Egypt. What is that? That's the book of Exodus, isn't it? So what Hosea is saying is that the first Exodus where God called his people out of Egypt is actually a type, a pattern, a theme, and God is going to do it again. So pulls them out, Exodus, forms them. But the problem is what's the history of Israel? The history of Israel is the history of idolatry. They were unfaithful again and again and again and again. And so what does the Hosea, what does the prophet Hosea say in the future? 
I'm going to do another exodus. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. So the first exodus actually foreshadows something greater. Flip over to Hosea chapter 2, if you're still there. The first exodus will be recapitulated in a new exodus in the future. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so Hosea 11, stay with me here, teaches that the old Exodus is a type of something greater, a new, fresh deliverance, Exodus, redemption, liberation. And so Matthew's not misusing Hosea. Matthew's actually reading Hosea really carefully. He's following Hosea's lead and seeing the first Exodus as a type of a later Exodus that God would accomplish. God had created his people. He had formed them and they're in exile because of their sin, most of their history. And so this message in Hosea is not that different than the message of all the Old Testament prophets. And that is God's going to come back. God's going to restore you. God's not finished. He's going to end your exile. And the language often used is that of a new exodus, especially in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and following the whole thing is about making a way, clearing a path. God's going to return. He's going to defeat enemies and he's going to be enthroned as king. And in Hosea, how would this new exodus in the future be accomplished? Look with me at chapter 1, verse 11 of Hosea. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So they're going to have a leader The issue is rule. They're going to have a king. And what kind of king will he be? Flip over to Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come and fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Remember, David's been dead a very long time. A new David. A new son of David. How did the book of Matthew start? Jesus is the son of David. Is that all coming together for us? Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Greek, it's the book of Genesis. We've got a book of Genesis in Matthew chapter 1. And here in Matthew 2 we have a new exodus led by a Davidic king. The story of Jesus completes and fulfills the story of Israel. Second narrative, Herod's murderous rage in chapter, let's go back to Matthew chapter two, verse 16. Herod's murderous rage. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Surprise, surprise, Herod gets furious. He was maniacal. 
As his power increased, so did his paranoia. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And so he had all the boys, two years old and under, in Bethlehem in the region, killed. Extinguishes the threat. Population of Bethlehem was around 1,000 at the time. We don't know about the rest of the region, but can you imagine? Absolutely brutal. The height of self-centeredness and wickedness crushes life that he might maintain his power. And what Matthew's doing, what he's been doing, what he'll continue to do is he's setting up Jesus as a new Moses. There's all kind of allusions here to Exodus. I don't have time to bring them all out, but just think of what we know in those first chapters of Exodus. Herod is to Jesus what Pharaoh was to Moses. Remember those chapters, Exodus 1 and 2? The offspring of the serpent wants to destroy the offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Look at Matthew 2.17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Well, here we go again. This tragedy fulfills scripture. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31 in particular. A voice was heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. The exiles were actually gathered in Ramah to march to Babylon. So here we go again. They're supposed to be ruling. God's supposed to be their king. And here, this is this place, Ramah, where they were gathered together. Where? Babylon. To lead out to exile. That's what's going on. In fact, let me read from Jeremiah 40, verse 1. Jeremiah 40, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had led him to go from Ramah when he took and bound him in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. And so Ramah was this staging ground for their deportation to Babylon. Rachel is weeping for these children. Now, again, Rachel, anyone know where Rachel's at? Rachel's in the book of Genesis. Rachel had long been dead. This isn't talking about a literal Rachel. This is a symbolic Rachel. She was married to who? Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. Rachel is the symbolic mother of the people of God. And she's weeping here in this passage because her descendants, her children, are going off to exile. But remember, again, Matthew's quoting Jeremiah. And we've got to think about the broader context. This is a sad verse, but you know what? The rest of Jeremiah 31 is a good news chapter. It's all about hope. It's all about restoration. Let me read several verses from Jeremiah 31. Keeping in mind, Matthew knows the context. And he has it in mind. So let me read Jeremiah 31, verse 3. What is Matthew trying to tell us? See, this is God's word, right? Inspired by God, but it's also literary brilliance because it's also written by Matthew, who knew his Old Testament really well. What is Matthew trying to teach us about Jesus? That he's fulfilling Jeremiah 31. Let me read verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. This is good news. Let me read from verse 12. 
They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, and here's our quotation. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Look at the very next verse, though. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy is coming. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Notice how he ends the book of Jeremiah. This is something we celebrate every month here. You should know these verses. I hope you do. Behold, the days are coming, he says, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So although what's happening in Matthew chapter 2, Bethlehem is tragic the tears of exile are being brought to completion with these tears in Bethlehem. And so zoom out what Matthew's doing, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Both Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31 are about the end of exile. God is going to return and forgive and restore and renew his people. The people of God have been exiled, but exile is not the last word. God would come back and he would accomplish a new exodus. He would inaugurate a new covenant through Jesus. God will come back to redeem his people and end their exile through the person of Jesus. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing. Matthew is connecting these Old Testament prophecies to the birth of of Jesus. That's what we've seen in Matthew. That's why in chapter 1, verse 17, how does he end the genealogy of Jesus? He says, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, there's exile again, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He's coming to restore his people. That's why in Chapter 1, verse 22, he quotes from Isaiah 7, and he says, Jesus is who? Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew's saying these prophecies 
find their fulfillment in Jesus. God has come, as we sing, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. God is restoring his people around his Messiah, Jesus. Exile is over. Freedom is here. The new Moses has brought a new exodus. In other words, what we'll see next chapter, the kingdom of God is at hand. That moves us to our third narrative, the return to Nazareth. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Joseph begins, he thinks, okay, let me go back, let me settle in Israel, let me go home. But an angel warns him to head to Galilee instead. Archelaus was better than Herod, but not by much. He started his rule by killing 3,000 Passover celebrants, 3,000 Jewish people. So Joseph wants to protect his family. He's a good man of God. He leads and loves and provides and protects. And so he sends them Galilee instead. And again, Matthew wants us to see echoes. Matthew is setting Jesus up as a new Moses. Look again at chapter 2, verse 20. Just the language. Note the language there. He says, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Let me read to you from the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Notice the similarity of language. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Matthew is showing us a new deliverer. Exodus 2.15, it said that Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. Moses flees. Same here. Jesus is the new Moses, the new leader who delivers us through a new exodus. And we have it again that was spoken by the prophet's might be fulfilled. Matthew is jealous to show us. We've already seen it like six times that the prophet might be fulfilled, the prophet might be fulfilled, the prophet might be fulfilled. Jesus brings the Old Testament to completion. It's fulfilled in him. But here in verse 23, this particular prophecy is actually a little bit challenging. There's a lot of different prophecies in the Bible. Some of them them are straight up, this is going to happen, And it happens. That might be what we call a direct prophecy. We've seen those already in Matthew, right? Isaiah 7 said, a virgin would conceive. Matthew chapter 1, a virgin conceives. We saw it in Matthew chapter 2. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Messiah is born in Bethlehem. But there are also different types of prophecies with themes and patterns and types that point forward. A type is a person that points forward ultimately to Jesus or, or an event or even an institution. And so we think of Adam. Romans 5 says Adam was a type of the one to come. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus brings righteousness. Or here we see Moses. Moses is a type, a deliverer, a prophet. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer and prophet. Or or the tabernacle and the temple, God's dwelling place, is a type that points forward to Jesus, who is the temple. And then the church, who has the spirit indwelling us. We have the presence of God on earth. Or the exodus, that act of deliverance would point forward. I could go on and on and on and on. Types. And this prophecy is a little bit different, a little bit challenging because Nazareth is actually not even in the Old Testament. 
But notice what he says. It's a little bit different. Were you paying attention? He said, the prophets might be fulfilled. Every other time he says that the prophet, singular, and he quotes a passage. Here he says, prophets, plural. So I don't think we should be looking for some specific verse in this case, but this theme of prophecy. And that theme is that the Messiah would not be welcomed well. He would be despised. He would be rejected when he comes. This Messiah would be a non-recognized and disdained figure. He would be obscure. He would be socially unimpressive. Let me read how Isaiah 53 describes him. This coming servant. Isaiah 53 says, Who's believed what the what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This Messiah, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No form, no majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He would come from obscurity. That's what Nazareth was. Nazareth had a population of about 480. Nazareth was a non-entity. Nazareth was nowheresville. Nazareth was Podunk Town and is one from Eula, Texas. I can appreciate this. <laughs> Listen to the way John 1 puts it. Nathaniel asked Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. He's not Jesus of Bethlehem, the house of David, but of Nazareth, the sticks. He'll be called a Nazarene. Three events, three prophecies. How should we respond? Five ways. Number one, if you don't know the Lord, believe. Believe. All of history pointed to Christ and will ultimately be summed up in him. If you don't know him, turn to him. There's grace. Grace that you desperately need. You need it more than you probably even know. He's the king of the worlds. The savior of the worlds. So trust him. If you don't believe him, trust him. That's your first step. If you have questions, we'd love to talk more. Second, behold him. Behold the wisdom and the sovereignty of our God. Just think. He's at work. He's guiding history. He made all these prophecies. We've seen three of them right here. Hundreds of years prior. And he guides the details of first century history to match exactly what he said would take place. God is sovereignly orchestrating small details that what was written in his word would come to pass. Just consider his power. Consider his wisdom. Consider his kindness. Just think about this for you personally. What does this mean? What does this section of scripture mean for you personally? There's so much we could say, but we'll just stop right here and just mention one, that God had an angel warn Joseph. He spoke in kindness to Joseph. So that ultimately he could have you. These events protect the son of God. So that the son of God could grow up, complete his mission, live a life of perfection and ultimately die in our place. Rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of God. Behold his wisdom 
and his power. Third, because of that, trust him. Trust the Lord. I mean, look at how he's kept his word. Our hope is secure. If you ever have doubts, and we all do, look at what he's done. We can trust him. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in our country right now, right? There's reason to be prayerful. There's reason to have our eyes wide open. There's reason to be concerned. There is no reason to fret. There is no reason to fear. God is in the business of moving nations. That's what he's done. Read your Bible. All through the Old Testament, he's raising up nations and he's lowering nations. That hasn't changed. Let's trust the Lord. Fourth, let's obey him. Let's obey his word. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Starting right here with Joseph, what we're going to see in coming chapters is when Jesus summons, the response is immediate obedience. Is there anything in your life that you're kind of hanging on to? Any sin that needs to be confessed and turned from? Has he asked you to do something you haven't acted on it? Note how Joseph responds with immediate obedience. We'll see this pattern again and again. His disciples obey immediately. His followers, his followers, they follow him. Joseph hears the word and he does the word. And then fifth, rejoice. Rejoice because you're free. What Matthew's trying to tell us again and again and again is exile is over and Jesus, God has returned and he is restoring his people. You say, well, hold on, I was never in exile. I live in America. Well, don't speak too soon. But one of the things we're going to learn in Matthew is that he comes to show us that the problem was never Egypt and the problem was never Assyria and the problem was never Rome. Physical exile is not our greatest problem. Yes, the people of God are in exile under the authority of Rome here, but Jesus comes to take care of the enemy ultimately behind the enemy. Our war is not against people. It never has been. It's, against, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. The spiritual forces of evil. So you say, well, I wasn't in exile physically. That's true. But the real enemy was never Egypt or Babylon or Rome. The enemy's back of them. And without Christ, we were enslaved to them. We were enslaved, not to Rome, but to Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus comes to free us through a new exodus, this liberating event, the cross. I love Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is this story. It's the transfiguration. Maybe you're familiar with it. And you have Moses and Elijah and you have Jesus. And they're talking about what Jesus was about to accomplish. He's going to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. And the word there is his departure. They were speaking of Jesus's departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I don't know why the English Bibles don't do this because the Greek word there is Exodus, Moses, the founder of the law, Elijah, the head of the prophets, is speaking about this king's coming Exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross. This Messiah, this new Moses, he leads us out of exile, out of the grip of the curse. And so rejoice, Christian, you're free. You're free from the grip of Satan. He has no hold over you because he has no hold. He cannot claim anything of the Son of God. Therefore, he cannot claim anything on you. Well, that's good news. He's been bound by the cross and resurrection. His days are numbered. You're free. You're free from Satan. You're free from sin. You're free from both the penalty of sin 
and the power of sin. The legal aspect, we deserve judgment, we deserve condemnation. Jesus paid it all. But not only that, there's this double grace. He frees us from the power of sin as well. And so if you've trusted Christ, the penalty of sin has been taken care of. There's no condemnation, but you are being freed by the power of the Spirit from the power of sin. That means that you can make progress. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You can be free in your life. Victory has been purchased for us. That's why we sing, we pray, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Freed from sin. Freed from death. Freed from the sting of death. That's why we can boast. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death is something that we can no longer fear, but we can embrace. We can reckon with. You really can't live well until you're ready to die well. And we're free. Death is no longer a period for the believer. It's just a comma. Free from the power and sting of death. We're free. We're free forever. We're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Even that word redeem, redemption, it's an Exodus word. It means to buy back. It's first used in Exodus chapter 6. Let me read it to you. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so when we think of redemption, we need to think new Exodus. Freed, delivered, no longer enslaved to sin, Satan, and death. God's redeemed us. He's defeated our enemies. He's purchased our freedom. Jesus is our gracious redeemer. So rejoice, Christian. No guilt, no shame, no curse, no chains. New life you gave, redeemer. My debt is paid, my soul now saved. Oh God, you came, Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice because of your sovereign work in history and your sovereign grace. You've been in control and you made promises and you guided history so that what you have said will come to pass. Maybe we be a people characterized by trust because you're trustworthy, by obedience because you're worthy and obedience is the path to joy. Thank you for the exodus that points forward to a greater exodus, the cross of Christ by which our enemies defeated and we're freed, we're delivered. We have every reason to rejoice. May we do so now by singing loud together to you, but also by living lives of faithfulness as we go from here. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.